Uh, can I get you to please turn with me to Ecclesiastes 1? Ecclesiastes 1. It's on page uh, 667 of the Church Bibles. Uh, on your way in, one of the handouts you had will have an outline of where we're going inside. It'll be handy to have that outline open in front of you. Uh, and if you want to take notes, then uh, there are pencils at the welcome desk. Feel free to get up and get a pencil. Uh, that's fine. The slides uh, are not detailed this time, so it's not going to go through all the points in the outline on the slide. Uh, so don't be waiting for that. Uh, but there will be a few things to, to, just a few things, to, passages, etc., to show you there. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, page 667. Let me lead us in prayer again. Father, you've been speaking to us through your word as it's been read. And we pray now that you'll continue to speak to us as I uh, uh, teach from this passage. Uh, help me to teach properly. Um, help all of us to uh, sift what we hear uh, and to retain what is right. Um, and Father, we pray that your spirit will work in us, uh, that even as we see uh, life under the sun, we would appreciate more and more what you have done for us in Jesus and that we would love him more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is meaningless. Who knows if the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Don't be overly righteous or make yourself too wise. Why destroy yourself? These are statements that you don't expect to find in the Bible, do you? But there they are in the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we make of them? How do they fit in? How is this ancient book of wisdom relevant for the life of the Christian in Kuala Lumpur in 2012? The Bible tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that includes Ecclesiastes. So we know that we're going to get something out of this. The basic principles for interpreting Ecclesiastes, they're the same basic principles for interpreting any other part of the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. And all of Scripture points to Christ. And so as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to read each part in the context of the whole book. And as we read the book, we need to read the whole book in the context of the whole Bible. Otherwise, we will misunderstand. But that's the same as any other part of Scripture, isn't it? And, as we do, we need to keep asking, how does this book point us to Christ and his gospel? In what sense is Jesus Christ and his gospel the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes? Well, if we're going to interpret all parts of Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole book, then it would be good for us to, to get a grasp of the whole book in summary first and then look at the various bits after that, isn't it? Uh, so that's what we're going to try and do today. And we're going to start by thinking about the author of Ecclesiastes. On the one hand, we know the divine author is God the Holy Spirit. What the scripture says is what the Spirit says. 
At the same time, we know the Spirit used human authors to write the Scriptures. And so, who is the human author? And we are told in verse 1 of chapter 1 that these are the words of the preacher. The word preacher there is the Hebrew word kohelet. Kohelet. The word kohel means assembly. So kohelet is the person who leads the assembly, assembles the assembly, speaks in the assembly, something like that. So our ESV translators have called him the preacher. Some other translations have called him the teacher. Secondly, we are told that this preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He's the son of David, could be a descendant of David, but he's in, he's in the Davidic line. He's a king in Jerusalem. If we go to chapter 1 verse 16, we see that, that he has great wisdom. Surpassing all who are in Jerusalem before him. If you go to chapter 2, verse 7 to 9, you see that, well, he's got many slaves and great possessions, more than anyone before him in Jerusalem. Silver, gold, treasures of kings, provinces, singers, both men and women, many concubines. Or if you go to chapter 12, verse 9, you go to chapter 12, verse 9, you find out more about the preacher. It says he was wise. He taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, arranging proverbs with great care. Who is this guy? Yeah, we have to say that Ecclesiastes presents the preacher as Solomon, don't we? Now, some people say that it can't be Solomon because, you know, I don't know, greater than any other king in Jerusalem before him. There's only David before him, but that's not true. Many kings in Jerusalem before. The Jebusites had kings in Jerusalem before. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, even there's a king in Jerusalem there. Unless there's good reason from within the text to indicate otherwise, I think we should take it as written by him. That the preacher is Solomon. But it doesn't mean that Solomon wrote the whole book. Because there are two voices that we hear in the book. One of them, we think, must be Solomon. But the other one, well, may or may not be the same person. There's a unity to the book because the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author, but in terms of the human author, we're not quite sure if there's one guy or two. I'll tell you why I think there's two. Well, well let me show you the two voices. If you read chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, the preacher is talked about in the third person. See verse 1? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Someone's writing about the preacher. And we'll call this person the, the frame narrator. You'll see why in a moment. It's not till verse 12 that we definitely hear the preacher's voice. Because it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. See that? So the voice, we, and that is the voice we, 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 we hear throughout the book. After that, from verse 12, until we get to the end, they come with me, keep your little yellow thing in Ecclesiastes 1, they come with me to chapter 12, verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8, where we hear the frame narrator again. 12, verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher taught the people knowledge. In verse 9, the preacher sought to find words of delight etc., etc. 
Right, so now the frame narrator is talking about the preacher in the third person again, isn't it? But in the middle, it's first person. I, the preacher, I did this, I did this, I did this. Except with one little exception in chapter 7, verse 27. In chapter 7, verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. And so we realize that the, the frame narrator has not just been writing at the beginning, at the end, but he's there right throughout the book. Someone is editing and helping us and guiding us to see and understand this wisdom of Solomon, shaping it into this book. That could be the frame narrator, Solomon himself. It's not impossible, but it's just a bit of funny that he's talking about himself in the third person in one point and then the first person another time. So I think it's more likely that the frame narrator is anonymous and he's telling us what Solomon has discovered and written. And he's packaging it for us so that we can understand and benefit from Solomon's wisdom. Now, some people have tried to drive a wedge between the frame narrator and the preacher, as if they're not in agreement. As if the frame narrator and Solomon say opposite things. But that's not the case. Come with me to chapter 12, verse 10 again. Look what it says. The frame narrator says the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly wrote words of truth. He, he affirms the sayings of the, of the preacher as given by one shepherd. So the conclusions that he gives is, is meant to illuminate and explain the words of the preacher, not to undermine them. So let's think once. How would you work out the message of Ecclesiastes? If the frame narrator is the person who is presenting and summarizing the preacher, and he's also writing scripture, then he's actually, then, well, then he's the divinely authorized, the divinely inspired interpreter of the preacher, isn't he? And so, it seems right to go to him for the big picture message of Ecclesiastes. So this morning, to kick off our series, we're going to look at the words of the frame narrator. Especially at the start, and also at the end, and then when we finish off our series in November, we'll look at the frame narrator again to help us understand it again, having digested the whole book. This time we'll concentrate on what he says at the end. Well, he starts off with what seems to be the big theme of the book. We're back in chapter 1, and let's look at it again. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity translates the Hebrew word habel, which is actually a very hard word to translate. It literally means breath, or wind, or, or vapor. And so it could be referring to something that's unsubstantial, just can't grab it. It could be profitless, doesn't, no use. Empty, and in vain like this vanity, meaningless, futile, transitory, very brief, fleeting, it's gone so quickly, unbeneficial, enigmatic, can't understand it, perplexing. Oh, it is perplexing, isn't it? All, all those things at the same time, with different emphases depending on the context. 
When the preacher is saying vanity of vanities, or meaningless of meaningless, or futile of futiles, or vapor of vapor, it's, he's saying something, something that's extremely vain, extremely meaningless, extremely futile. You know how they talk about holy of holies? That's the most holy place? Well, that, that's, the, that's the way they talk. Holy of holies is the most holy. Vanity of vanities is the most utterly vain. Completely useless, completely meaningless. And throughout the book, the preacher is going to look at life at all different angles, all different kinds of ways, trying to make sense of life, and he's going to keep on seeing that is habel, vanity of vanities. And what is vain and meaningless and futile and brief and perplexing is, verse 3, life under the sun. Under the sun. <coughs> that's another phrase that's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you read through Ecclesiastes, you try and work out what it means, it quickly becomes clear that life under the sun is, is this life. Some people say life without God, but, but God is there in the preacher's thinking when considering life under the sun. What's not, it's, it's this life. I'll tell you what's not there. What's not there is the gospel. He doesn't deny the gospel, he just hasn't got there yet, has he? What's not there is the resurrection. He doesn't deny the resurrection. He just hasn't got there yet. Uh, what isn't there is the life to come. He doesn't deny the life to come. He hasn't got there yet. It's because remember, God didn't reveal everything about everything all at once. God revealed his plans and purposes step by step. By step. And at this point in salvation history, he had not revealed the future resurrection. There were hints of it. There was not direct revelation yet that at the end of the age, the dead would be raised. Life under the sun is life when you don't know whether or not, to, as you, to quote Ecclesiastes, the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down to the earth. You, you don't know. You haven't got to that point. Life under the sun is this life. When all you look at is this life under the sun. It's not this life as opposed to the life to come. It's just this life considered alone. Without reference to future life. It's living in this world as it is now without thinking about the life to come. It's living in this fallen world full stop. And when you live there, the preacher shows that is Habel. Meaningless. Which is actually not surprising for the Christian, is it? Because we know that we are living outside the garden. Remember back in Genesis 3, when we first sinned against God, we are expelled from the Garden of Eden, where we lived under God's blessing, and instead God put us in a creation that is under curse. And God has consigned everything to futility, we were told in Romans 8. It's part of the punishment for our rebellion against Him. And that's exactly what we see when we look at Ecclesiastes. That's a nutshell, the message of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. The preacher elaborates on this theme in uh, verses 2 to 11, which is the rest of our main passage today. So for the purpose of the exercise that we read this, I want you to temporarily forget everything you know about the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. All right? 
There are all kinds of things that you know about eternity from the rest of the Bible. I promise you we'll come back to that. But just for now, look with me and with the preacher at life under the sun. And the preacher asked a big question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? Okay, what's the question? Bet you have. Why do I do all this work? So frass. Why do I bother? Now, sometimes we ask that just because we're stressed out or we're upset with the boss. Right? But the preacher is thinking here far more profoundly than that. What's the use, ultimately, of all the work people do? People work hard and work is frustrating, it's difficult, it's toilsome. And what's the point in the end? Wake up in the morning, go to work, come home, watch TV, sleep. So I can get up in the morning, go to work, come home, watch TV, sleep. And get up in the morning, go to work. Or if you're Malaysian, I feed myself so I have energy to work, so I can buy delicious food, so I can eat, so that I can work. So, Life is hard. And then you die. Not just you, but all of you. You all work so hard. You all toil and toil and toil, and then you, and then you die. You think, ah, it's different when you've got children. Really? You work hard, you raise the kids, and then you die. And they work hard, they raise their kids, and they die. Well, what's the point of that? It's like when you learn the life cycle of the frog when you're in school. You remember learning the life cycle of the frog when you're in school? Right, the frog lays the eggs, the eggs become tadpoles, tadpoles become frogs, and lays the eggs, the tadpoles. The only difference is you are part of the cycle. The cycle of generations. Verse 4. A generation goes, and a generation comes, thanks to But the earth remains forever. Through all the cycles, people come and go, Come and go. And it's the world that remains. But then when you look at the world, it's full of endless repetition as well. Verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises, round and round. Nothing new happens, it's just a repeated cycle, like the cycle of generations. And the wind, the wind blows the south, it goes round the north, around the wind, round and round goes the wind, on its circuits the wind returns. Round and round. Nothing new happens, it's just a repeated cycle, like the cycle of generations. Or in verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow, they flow again. Round and round, nothing new happens, it's just a water cycle. It's just like that. Repeated cycle like the cycle of generations. Generations come, generations go. The earth remains forever. Forever cycling round and round. Lots and lots of activity by the people, by the wind, by the sun rising, wind blowing, streams flowing, but all going nowhere. Fast. How does that make you feel? Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. And a man cannot utter it. You don't want to talk about this, do you? You don't want to think about the fact that you're caught up in this cycle. But look at yourself. 
You're caught up in this cycle, not just on a generational level, but even in your own behavior. Vanity of life, the meaninglessness of the world, the futility of existence. You see, but you never see enough. You never get to the point of, or to a point of completion or satisfaction that comes from sight. You just keep on seeing. You hear, but you never hear enough. You never get to the point where you've heard enough to be filled. And so I said, the, the eyes are not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing, because seeing and hearing don't actually get you anywhere apart from helping you live in this meaningless life to see more and hear more. Verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. The cycles of people, the cycles of nature will go on and on. And the whole world under the sun is just going nowhere. The preacher issues a challenge. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. You think it's a baby is new, isn't it? How many generations of babies have you seen? iPhone is new iPhone is just another tool or another toy depending on who you are and how you use it. And people have always made things to make their vain life more productive or more fun and what use in the end anyway. Because whatever you do will be quickly forgotten. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come up from afar. You, you, you cycle on, you labor, you toil. You know what? No one's going to remember you. Sorry. In a hundred years' time, no one's even going to remember Lee Chong Wei. You know? And in a thousand years' time, even Barack Obama is simply going to be an entry in some obscure history book that no one reads except the night before exams. <laughs> and even if you were Barack Obama, face it, and you thought that people might remember you, what good would that be? They don't know you, they just know a name. The rest of us won't even have that. Sure, you can pay money and have a nice tombstone. How long is that going to last? Think the cemeteries are still going to be nicely kept in 3,000 years' time? Where are the cemeteries from 3,000 years ago? You're going to have a legacy. Yeah, you can have a legacy and be remembered by your children. If you're lucky, your grandchildren. How many of you know the lives of your great-great-grandfather? Face it, your legacy will be lost in just a few generations. Which is just like that when you consider the age of the earth. The preacher is right. There is no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So why bother? What does man gain by all the toil with which he toils under the sun? All is vanity, meaningless, fleeting, temporary. Just like the vapor, be gone anyway. We saw earlier that the book of Ecclesiastes ends with the same kind of theme of vanity as it starts with. Come with me to the end, to chapter 12. <coughs> 
chapter 12, verse 8, and we get the frame narrator quoting the preacher again, and after 12 chapters of musings, he still says, all is vanity. That's not changed. Life under the sun is still life under the sun. Ultimately, Habel. So, having gone through this whole book, how is the frame narrator going to end the book? How are you going to live in this meaningless life? Verse 13, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Do your duty to God, your Creator, while you live. But hang on. Why should you bother if everything is meaningless? Why should you bother if it's just an endless cycle and no one will remember your part in it? Well, verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. His judgment. You see, the frame narrator, he's following the preacher who speaks about judgment in chapter 11. Right at the end tells us that in the, at the end, if you broaden your perspective just a little bit, if you look just a little bit beyond life under the sun, you take in a bigger picture. Yes, life is going nowhere in cycles, but it's not just going nowhere in cycles. In the bigger scheme of things, if you step back, you see a bigger reality that in the end, God will bring everything that you and I do into judgment. Even if people forget you, even if the whole world forgets you, and no one remembers your name, God does. And the things that you do, even secret things, whether good or evil, we brought by Him to judgment. Now, if that is the case, if that is the case, then suddenly, what you do in this life actually does matter. Life under the sun is vanity. We're going to see that over and over. It's utter vanity until you go beyond just under the sun and take judgment into account. People don't like the idea that God is judged, but think about it. You still don't like the idea God is judged? Friends, judgment is the only thing that gives meaning to this meaningless life. And so the book of Ecclesiastes will end by driving us to a conviction that God brings everything to judgment, but that's still very vague. Not told how this judgment will come, not told when this judgment will come, not told the outcome of the judgment, what the results will be, what the rewards are, what the punishments are, not told if there's any hope for us beyond the judgment. All those things are waiting future revelation from the point of view of the book. Revelation that will continue through the prophets of the Old Testament and be completed in Christ and His resurrection. You see, Ecclesiastes shows us life under the sun, gives us that hint of something to come, but it's only part of the story. With the coming of Jesus, we get the full picture. Remember, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. That was true. 
until Jesus came. God became man. Use the technical term, the incarnation. That is something completely new, isn't it? God had never become man before. His death on the cross to take the punishment for sin, that's completely new. There have been pictures and types and shadows, but never, never had the sin of the world been atoned for. The resurrection is resurrection from the dead. That is new as well. Jesus is the first one to be raised immortal. That's new. And in the end, he will bring in the new creation. Creation without Habel. Something new. Which brings us back to Romans 8. Remember, Romans 8 tells us the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, God subjected everything to being habel, meaningless, futile, and he did it with a plan that it's not going to be like this forever. Creation is waiting and longing for the day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. The time when the meaningless cycles are, are over. When the children of God are seen for who they really are. And we look forward to the day when Habel is removed. In the meantime, we participate in the day by living for Jesus. And living for Jesus is not meaningless. Because since Jesus rose from the dead, then we will rise as well. And there is more to our life than life under the sun. There's more to our story than that. And if that is true, and if it's a new creation on the one hand, and there's hell on the other, and those are real, then what we do for the kingdom has eternal value. When you share the gospel with someone, when you help your brother or sister, persevere in the faith, when you do anything or even giving someone a cup of cold water for the sake of the kingdom, that is not meaningless. It's a whole part of helping someone to come to Jesus, to persevere in Jesus, who can save them from hell and give them eternal life in his glorious kingdom. That's part of building God's kingdom that lasts forever. And so the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Some people find it really frustrating when their friends tell them how a movie ends before they've seen it. That doesn't affect me, I never remember anyway. Have I spoiled the suspense of the book of Ecclesiastes for you? <laughs> yeah? Okay, I have. Have I covered ground that you will cover again as we work through the book? Yeah. I'm sorry. But I'm not really. Because remember, every part of the book must be interpreted in light of the whole. And the whole book must be interpreted in light of the whole Bible. Got to see the wood before we look more carefully at the trees. 
But don't worry, there's lots more to Ecclesiastes than what we've talked about. There's much wisdom here from God for living life under the sun, which is useful to us because that's where we live, isn't it? We are still living in this world that has been subjected to futility. Remember, we live in the overlap of the ages. Jesus has come with this, this look at the diagram there, there's this age down the bottom. And when Jesus has come, he's brought in the age to come. But this age still continues and we are living in the overlap. We're part of the age to come. Seated with Christ, alive with him, reigning with him, having God's spirit, having eternal life, full of meaning and purpose. As we serve God in His eternal kingdom. Yes! Also still in this age. Still in KL. Still struggling with sin. And still going round and round in the cycles of life. Still feeling the frustration of Habel. Still waiting for the sons of God to be revealed. So there's much we will learn from Ecclesiastes for how to live under the sun even though we belong to the day that is to come. But let me finish by asking a question. (coughs) Do you live a meaningless life? Is your life happen? You might be someone here who is not yet a follower of Jesus. And today, until today, you might not have even thought about God judging you at the end. You just think in a life under the sun kind of way. But today you've seen God's wisdom on your life. If that's all it is, then it's vanity. What's the point? Life apart from judgment is simply meaningless. It is habel. If there is no judgment, then you may as well just do anything you like and then die. Or actually just die. doesn't matter anyway. But if God does judge, then life has meaning. And what you do does matter. But if God does judge, then you and I are in trouble because we haven't treated God properly and we haven't treated other people properly. And if God does judge, then you might be on the wrong side of that judgment. And because of sin, you'll be headed for eternal destruction. The solution to the problem is not putting your head in the sand and go back to adopting a perspective of life that is simply life under the sun. God's got a far better solution. He sent his own son, S-O-N, to die on the cross to pay the punishment for your sins. He raised him from the dead as Lord of all. And believing in Jesus not only frees you from a life of meaninglessness, it brings you forgiveness from the very same judgment that makes things matter. Following and serving Jesus gives purpose to life that only he can give because he is the risen Lord who brings in the life to come. And because of him, your labor is not in vain. And the work you do for him really does count for eternity. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word does indeed teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. We thank you for for the many different kinds of literature that you have given us in your word. And particularly today, Lord, we want to thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the work of your spirit through the preacher, frame narrator, to bring us this word. Help us to see what life under the sun is like. As we consider life under the sun, we we give you thanks that you have made it such that there is judgment in the end. Even though we don't like the idea, we know that we need it. And we give you thanks that through your Son you have rescued us from that judgment. Father, we pray that you help us to continue to struggle and work with this book over the weeks to come. Help us to learn from the wisdom that you have placed here. Help us to live as people who belong to the resurrection, but who live rightly in this life under the sun. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.